Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Dr. Olson, I have a 30-year-old female with no surgical history, no significant past medical history, who presents with abdominal pain. She describes it as a severe, sudden onset pain that started about three hours ago, actually woke her up from sleep. She denies dysuria, hematuria, fevers, vomiting, or any other symptoms at this time. Her vitals are within normal limits, but she uh, does appear to be in pain. On exam, she has tenderness of the right lower quadrant in the right kind of side of her pelvis with voluntary guarding, no rebound. She has no CVA tenderness or upper abdominal pain. I think she might have an ovarian cyst, but we need to rule out the diagnoses of ectopic pregnancy, ovarian torsion, urinary tract infection, and kidney stone. I don't think it's appendicitis because of how suddenly it started. I would like to get a CBC, a BMP, a urine, a urine pregnancy, and a pelvic ultrasound. And we should probably do a pelvic exam to feel for masses and cervical motion tenderness. I would like to get her four milligrams of IV morphine and four milligrams of IV Zofran for the pain and nausea, and then I'll check back on her and see if she needs any more. All right, so we've been going through our critical abdominal pain diagnoses, and we've been focusing recently on the GU, genital urinary causes of abdominal pain. And so far, we've covered ectopic pregnancy. That was kind of the queen of abdominal pain, um, and uh, we also d talked about urinary tract infections, a very, very common diagnosis, but also frequently misdiagnosed, but very common, so you obviously have to cover it. In women, there are two other big pelvic diagnoses that we need to cover when we're going through abdominal pain and the differential for abdominal pain. And next week, you'll notice that there's parallel diagnoses in men. But this week, we are wrapping up the female GU diagnosis, and we're talking specifically about two diagnoses. First, let's talk about the critical diagnosis of pelvic inflammatory disease in tubo-ovarian abscess. So these are deep infections high up in the reproductive tract. Let's say you get a sexually transmitted infection or some vaginitis or something. No big deal. That's all outpatient treatment typically. But if that infection starts to migrate up into the uterus and into the fallopian tubes and the ovaries, that's where people start to run into trouble. So gonorrhea and chlamydia are obviously common causes of this, but you also need to know that a third of these infections are not from a classic sexually transmitted infections, and specifically they're caused by other anaerobic infections, which will impact your treatment quite a bit, and you'll see that in a second. On history, with PID and tubovarian abscess, you're talking about a triad of abdominal pain with a lot of like vaginal symptoms, discharge, bleeding, and usually it's also going to kind of have some mimic to urinary tract infections like we talked about before. So you'll get some symptoms like dysuria with this. And that's, again, why you have to be so careful diagnosing urinary tract infection. You can get fevers and vomiting with this. PID is infected pelvic organs, right? So you're looking for signs of infection, pain, fevers, drainage and discharge, right? So the history is straightforward. Your most common risk factor for this is going to be anything that increases your risk of getting a sexually transmitted infection. The other thing that is pretty risky here is anything that puts you at risk for like a delayed diagnosis. So like if the patient 
was at risk for a sexually transmitted infection. They have been for years and they've never been to a doctor and they don't have an OBGYN. And when you're getting ready to do your pelvic exam, they tell you they've never had one, that type of thing. PID doesn't just develop suddenly overnight. The infection needs some time to kind of worsen. The most common, so those are kind of your risk factors. The most common red flag that you would want to mention to your attending is if this patient has an IUD. Now, the I have to be careful how I say this here because this is very controversial. IUDs are, um, I guess, debated regarding whether or not they actually increase your risk of developing pelvic inflammatory disease. The main thing that I personally had questions with when I was in residency and that solidified very early on as an attending where I had one of these is, do you need to remove the IUD if a patient has PID? So if a patient has pelvic inflammatory disease, a inf- you know infection of their uterus, and they have an IUD in there, do you need to remove it in the emergency department? And the answer is no, you don't. But it's something that you would want to probably note on your chart, the presence of an IUD, that's kind of important. And you would want to mention that to OB, obviously. So nothing too big or surprising on history. Not that it probably matters much, but you know you do want to note if they have an IUD. Yeah, but it's signs of pelvic infection, right? So pain, fevers, drainage, and discharge. Now let's talk exam. Exam is the most important thing that we need to cover about PID. So I need you to pay attention for this piece of it because this is specifically how you diagnose PID. It's a it's a clinical diagnosis. To diagnose PID, you want some symptoms of PID, right? Without another obvious diagnosis to cause the symptoms, plus tenderness on pelvic exam. Now there is tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of debate on the utility of doing speculum exams at all, like almost at all in the emergency department. And I tend myself to fall into the category of people that believes that speculum exams don't frequently change your management and can most times be avoided in the emergency department with only a few exceptions. I do believe that patients can, I think that it's It's been proven in literature that patients can get their own samples and swabs or whatever for sexually transmitted infection testing. I, um, what I do think though, so that's specifically speculum exam, something that I think everyone agrees does possibly and likely change management is your bimanual exam. So the bimanual exam compared to the specular exam, getting the whole setup, the bimanual exam is quick. You grab your chaperone, right? And this is very much required to diagnose PID. When the patient has historical concern for PID, and this is in your differential, and you start to see uterine tenderness on your uh, bimanual exam, adnexal tenderness, or significant cervical motion tenderness, right? Don't they call it, it's like the chandelier sign or something? That's PID. It's when you have symptoms plus uterine, adnexal, or cervical motion tenderness on your bimanual exam. Not that these are 100% specific for PID, that's definitely not the case, but symptoms plus uterine, adnexal, cervical motion tenderness are kind of your minimum diagnostic criteria for this diagnosis. Things like fevers and copious vaginal discharge and things like that, that makes your suspicion even higher. But again, you need to be doing a bimanual exam on these patients is, at least right now, my understanding of the right way to do this. Of course, things can change in the future, but... um, Testing plan. So you want to send off your sexually transmitted infection swabs, so your gonorrhea and your chlamydia. You obviously need to send off your pregnancy, right? But um, 
and usually like a CBC. The thing that you, if you, if they don't have a CT, if you're not getting a CT scan, a lot of times you want to get a pelvic ultrasound. That's kind of the main piece of your testing plan because what you're looking for on that ultrasound isn't just pelvic inflammatory disease at that point. You already know that clinically, but you want to know if the patient has developed a full-blown like tubo-ovarian abscess, like a pelvic abscess from this infection because you, you need to know that. It definitely changes your management. But that's the testing plan is pretty straightforward. Now your treatment plan. So here's what you need to know. So patients who are septic looking, toxic looking, they're vomiting too much so that they won't be able to take oral antibiotics. If they tried taking oral antibiotics on an outpatient basis, they didn't get better. If they're pregnant, if they're immunosuppressed, and if they have that tubo ovarian abscess, generally that's going to get admitted to your hospital for IV antibiotics. And you need to cover for chlamydia. So that's typically something like doxycycline, but you can also, you also need to cover gonorrhea and anaerobes. Remember one third of PID isn't caused by gonorrhea and chlamydia. So the antibiotic of choice here is usually something like a second generation cephalosporin. If you look at like antibiotic guides, something like cefoxitin or cefetitin, because it doesn't just have gonorrhea coverage, but it also has pretty good anaerobic coverage. Um, and your classic third generation cephalosporin, right? So we give 250 milligrams intramuscular ceftriaxone frequently for uh, concern of gonorrhea infection. But that third generation cephalosporin doesn't have very good anaerobic coverage at all, which is why sometimes they will use a second generation cephalosporin uh, because it has more anaerobic coverage is what I'm trying to say. I'm sorry, you guys. Okay. All right. Most patients with PID, they do not need to be admitted. They can be sent home on oral antibiotics. Uh, most of them will get better on oral antibiotics. So again, you're using something like doxycycline to cover chlamydia, and then usually maybe ceftriaxone to knock out the gonorrhea. If you have a low suspicion for sexually transmitted cause of PID, you should probably be adding something like metronidazole as well. Remember, a third of PID is caused by typically anaerobes, infections other than gonorrhea and chlamydia. So that's why you'd consider adding metronidazole. And then for brownie points, you want to counsel the patient on getting partners tested and treated, avoiding sex until their treatment course is completed and their partners are cleared, and um, usually referring them for additional sexually transmitted infection testing, uh, especially things like HIV testing, which at least in the departments I've been in, we don't do HIV testing. So your apartment might be different, though. That's uh, PID and tubo ovarian abscessed. Now, the other, this will be our last big non-UTI, non-ectopic female GU cause of abdominal pain is going to be, this is a big one, is ovarian torsion. This is a critical diagnosis, and it was kind of the diagnosis I was trying to represent with my presentation today. What happens is that for whatever reason, in um, ovarian torsion, right? So we're done with PID. We're talking about ovarian torsion now. That ovary twists on its pedicle and loses blood supply. And so I need to make a very important physiology point to you here. This is critical to your understanding of how ovarian torsion works and critical to helping you not make a mistake. So the ovary has dual arterial blood supply. So when the ovary twists on its pedicle, it's not twisting off the artery. It's blocking the venous drainage. And that back pressure causes the ovary to swell and then decrease inflow to the ovary because the blood can't drain out. 
And the reason this is so, so important to understand, and we'll cover this in our testing plan, is because frequently you're going to be getting an ultrasound to look for ovarian torsion. And you'll still be able to see arterial flow because it's the blood flowing out that's the problem. So we'll, we're going to get to that later, but just know that with ovarian torsion, there's a dual blood supply. And I think your attending is going to be really impressed if you already understood that. Now let's go, let's get going here with our history. Your classic complaint with ovarian torsion is sudden, sharp, severe, unilateral, usually pelvic pain. Although one of the sources I was reading when I was getting ready for this is the meds, I always look at the Medscape online kind of overview. They say that 25%, they cited a source that said 25% of ovarian torsion has bilateral pelvic pain. Um, these patients are usually going to be uh, nauseous and vomiting due to the pain. So this isn't a little, eh, my belly kind of hurts. No, like the patient is having like pain. Okay. It's pain. And that's what these patients are complaining of. Very rarely is it a slowly progressive type thing, although certainly anything's possible. Here are your red flags. None of these are specific for ovarian torsion. They're just kind of around. And a lot of times we recognize them in hindsight, I guess. Pediatric females are at increased risk of ovarian torsion. Also at risk uh, for not coming in immediately when the pain starts, right? So pediatric females, very high risk for ovarian torsion. You need to kind of have that in your differential with uh, pediatric female abdominal pain. Pregnant patients are at increased risk for this. And patients with ovarian masses and ovarian cysts. So history of PCOS, ovarian cysts, that type of thing. They are at increased risk for this. And again, none of these red flags are specific for torsion. Obviously, tons of people, you know, that are pediatric females have lower abdominal pain and it's not a torsion, but the with the right symptoms and the right story, this should make you a little extra worried. Pediatric females, pregnant patients and patients with ovarian cysts masses are at increased risk for having ovarian torsion. Now on exam, Nothing, there's nothing really sensitive or specific on exam. Focal pelvic pain, I guess, especially with like peritoneal signs should raise your eyebrows, obviously. If you feel a big mass or something, sure. But really your exam's not going to help you out too much here. And I'm going to just jump ahead to the end. The treatment plan for an ovarian torsion is going to be an OBGYN consult in the OR. So the really important thing to know about ovarian torsion is your testing plan. So your testing plan for ovarian torsion is going to be typically pelvic ultrasound. And specifically for the sake of your clerkship, if ovarian torsion is on your differential and you can't rule it out reasonably with your history and exam, you should be ordering a pelvic ultrasound with Doppler to look at that blood flow. But your attending is going to want you to know what to look for. Now, like I said before, because of that dual blood supply to the ovary, even if the ovary is torsed, you still can sometimes see arterial flow. So you have to be careful here. What you're looking for is a swollen ovary with decreased venous flow. That's actually what you're looking for. Many times you'll also see a big cyst or something on that ovary that made it prone to torsing. So your testing plan if you are worried about ovarian torsion, is a pelvic ultrasound of the ovaries with Doppler. That's your testing plan. And a very interesting question that I personally have looked up regarding this is can you, because frequently you're like, well, I also want to look for appendicitis or something like that, um, is the question I've had is can you use a CT scan to diagnose torsion or rule out torsion? Because your classic test for this, by and large, is a pelvic ultrasound with Doppler. But again, 
remember that even with the ultrasound, you're looking at a swollen ovary as kind of more of what you're looking for because tons of torsed ovaries have uh, arterial flow anyways. So let's say I'm concerned about appendicitis as well, and I get a CT and it's completely normal. Does that rule out torsion? Well, again, in that Medscape or overview article of this, they cited two papers, both strongly suggesting that a normal CT scan showing, you know, normal appearing ovaries, no cysts on the ovaries, no, you know, abnormal looking adnexa that actually had a negative predictive value of 100% in ruling out ovarian torsion. So for me, if I'm really looking for torsion and specifically for torsion, that means I have a pretty high pretest probability of torsion and I kind of want that that definitive ovarian ultrasound test. But if I don't have a super high pretest suspicion for it, at, at least as of the moment of this podcast, and I'm sure I'll get emails about this, I think that a CT scan with normal ovaries, normal adnexa, I think that that uh, is, is a, probably a reasonable way myself where if I'm not too concerned and I have a CT that shows normal ovaries, I think I'm done there. I don't want to burden the patient with a bill from too large tests, that type of thing. It, it's certainly controversial, but the just know the clerkship protocol for torsion is pelvic ultrasound with color Doppler. That's kind of what everyone says. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to make a, a brief statement on ovarian cysts. You need to know that ovarian cysts make you prone to ovarian torsion but that cysts in and of themselves, when they rupture, can cause tremendous pain, mimicking torsion sometimes. And they can occasionally hemorrhage as well when they're, the cyst is, is hemorrhagic, and that can get severe sometimes as well. But in a stable patient, a ruptured ovarian cyst is somewhat a benign cause of abdominal or of pelvic pain. Just know that those cysts also increase the patient's risk of torsion, which is not a benign diagnosis. So you really need to think carefully about whether you think it's the benign benign diagnosis of a cyst or if you think that it's like a intermittent torsion and that type of thing. And it's just something that you want to think through. You don't need to OBGYN consult everyone with an ovarian cyst. That'd be crazy. But they do increase your risk of having torsion and... Um, you just need to know that. So that wraps up this episode. More next week, the man equivalent next week. So until then, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.